0: You're listening to go dig a hole this is your host christopher sims this show is your archaeology toolkit where i'll bring you resources to kickstart your career in archaeology if you're still in school thinking about going back just getting started or want to take the next step go dig a hole has you covered all right now let's get on with the show All right, welcome back to the Go Dig a Whole podcast. Today on the line, I've got Kate Ellenberger. She is a PhD student at um, SUNY Binghamton. Kate, how's it going?
1: It's going great.
0: And I also have Nikki Martinson and Carrie Lentz with uh, Codify and the Center for Digital Archaeology. How's it going?
2: Hey, Chris, going good. Yeah,
3: nice to talk with you.
0: Awesome. So, uh, Kate, Uh, Give us a little brief background on you. What are you working on over at uh, Binghamton?
1: I'm a PhD candidate, which means I have only thing left I have to do is finish my dissertation. So if you visit my uh, social media accounts these days, there's a lot of uh, today I'm writing five pages on this topic. So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm writing full time right now and uh, occasionally doing some consulting in digital and public archaeology. Uh, and my dissertation is about the uh, involvement of institutions in the development of public archaeology and its long-term projects. So uh, yeah, that's I'm just working on writing right now. And, and obviously, I just had that publication come out. So that's more writing.
0: The writing never ends. It's funny you say uh, the, the only thing you have left is to finish. And that's, we know that's no small feat. Uh, yes. So good luck with that. Thank you. (laughs) And uh, Nikki and and Carrie, uh, Nikki is also a grad student. Uh, You want to give us a brief background on on what you're working on?
2: Yeah, I am a master's student at Humboldt State University in the Applied Anthropology program. Um, So I'm actually at a similar point, but with my thesis, I'm just starting the full proposal and writing of that section. And what I'm interested in looking at for my research there is... Uh, user experience of archaeology, especially on websites and the internet
0: awesome, and I'd imagine there's a good bit of crossover with uh, everybody's interests uh, here on the show today in terms of um, you know the efficacy of of teaching and and public engagement and the way information is transmitted
2: oh yeah i'm I'm fangirling hard getting the opportunity to talk to Kate today. <laughs> Oh, boy!
1: <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm fancy now. <laughs>
0: and uh, Carrie, what are you working on? What's your background?
1: Hi, I'm a
3: grad student at Sonoma State in the Cultural Resource Management Program, and I've been working in the private sector for about five years before that. And my current project, well, I just got finished with a archaeology new technologies and archaeology course, and we actually developed in AR app for the Presidio to use in their public interpretation program. So excited to talk about that with Kate. Um, And my thesis might focus a little bit on using AR to tell the story of LGBT culture in San Francisco.
0: Awesome. Awesome.
1: Super cool.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm really happy everybody's together today. Um, so I guess before we get into talking about Kate's recent publication on, um, augmented reality and virtual reality in public archeology, span let's talk a little bit about open access. So Kate, you chose to publish, uh, open access. The first question I have is what are some of the reasons you chose to publish in an open access format?
1: Well, uh... There's several reasons, obviously, uh, all the other folks on this panel, you all understand that, um, it's hard to be an early career researcher in terms of publishing, finding time and money, uh, to publish It's You have to justify your choices of how to spend your time versus, um, having a job, (laughs) for example, (laughs) uh, most jobs are not going to pay so that you can uh, work on your publications. And those are really important for working within the scholarly community, uh, as well as getting a job in our field. And so uh, I saw that Dr. Sarah Perry had negotiated with the SAA, the Society for American Archaeology, uh, so that all the digital reviews would be paid reviews, and they would be by default, open access, which is, I think, the only part of any SAA journal that is continually going to be open access. They often uh, will have like a particular theme issue or a temporarily open access uh, issue based on if it's about archaeological advocacy, for example, or or something that they want the public to see versus uh, professionals, because the assumption is always that folks in our field are all going to have access to these publications and that's just not true. Um, so the so the first reason is because I needed to justify the amount of time I was going to spend on writing this. Uh, secondly, I want to work with Dr. Perry. She's extremely uh, knowledgeable about digital archeology span and she's a PhD advisor to several of my colleagues and, um, incredible mentor. And thirdly, I wanted to be able to write something that would be uh, accessible to my colleagues and stakeholders that I work with because I'm not planning to go the traditional, Path toward a professor type of job, yeah. uh, and I'm okay with sort of cobbling together the kind of career where I pursue only what I'm really I feel I'm good and and making a good contribution to, um, and not on the hamster wheel because I've noticed my health and my my mental health don't don't um, do so well when I'm pushing myself every moment of every day. yes so um, I'm I, I wanted this to work for me in case I had clients or uh, CRM firms or public employees of the government who wanted to see it interest groups I work with historical societies often um, you know all sorts of people I wanted them to see it and I didn't want them to feel uh, alienated by the style of my writing or by where it was. Uh, so, so I had three reasons, I guess I was a little long winded, but <laughs> there's a lot of good reasons to be open access. And I really got my inspiration for pursuing it, even as an early career researcher from Eric Kansa, who I've been really lucky to know and, um, who I work with at open context.
0: Oh, nice. now, I'm
1: on, I'm on the editorial board, um, for geographic data there. And I don't, I mean, he does all the work. Him and Sarah Kansa are both, both uh, the motors of open context, but they articulate the impact of being open in archeology span really carefully and thoughtfully. So I would, I would tell people to go look at their work for a more articulate version of why open access is an important thing to at least consider.
0: Awesome, the, it, it's amazing how many projects you're working on It sounds like, uh, (laughs) you know, in addition to your, your PhD dissertation, you've got a lot of other projects and, uh, I'm sure, you know, the, the busyness can be taxing at times, but it sounds like the nature of these projects, it's, it's kind of like a fun kind of busy.
1: Don't tell my advisor that, (laughs) (laughs) uh, yes. As she reads. Oh, my cat's making an appearance on the podcast here.
0: Is this Tiberius. one uh, Tiberius? Yes. This is
1: Tiberius the Roman archaeology named Cat. He wants to go outside. Um but the uh, <laughs> yeah he 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 likes to um lord over the neighborhood like a Roman emperor would. Um, however uh, yeah I I definitely have always been one of those people who has lots of projects going on. And that's in part because of the amazing community of folks, uh, especially in digital archaeology, who are on social media talking about different cool projects. And the MSU DAI, MSU uh, Digital Archaeology Institute that I participated in. Mm -hmm. You get a lot of cool ideas, and then you have to try to narrow down what you're able to actually do. And some things are working out at different times, and so you have to try to time them, or else um, you'll have too much to do at once. So... All those are all at different stages of development. Um, so, yeah.
0: Nice. Um, so, another question I have about your your open access, um, you know, publication decision is, um, what's the process like to publish? Is it different than uh, the traditional, you know, paywall uh, closed access?
1: You know, this open access is through the publisher that the SAA normally uses. So it's actually, I think the same, but, um, because it's in a special section, the editors are Sarah Perry and that she will edit. She worked with me on developing the content cause it changed a little bit. Oh, the cat's knocking things off the table. I apologize. <laughs> uh, he, he just stole my house key and knocked it off the table. Um, Oh, now he's knocking my headphones off the table. Wow, this is a lovely podcast appearance. Um, So first, Sarah will edit the uh, development of the... So she'll edit like an abstract and and an outline if you have one. And then you'll give her a draft, you'll revise it together, and then they'll send it to the overall editor of AAP, um, Advances in Archaeological Practice. It's not a, it's peer reviewed in a sense because they are professional archeologists and they review it. And there's three people who've looked at it before it's uh, made it to publication, but it's not peer reviewed in the sense that they send it out um, to a group of reviewers. So the open access thing didn't actually impact the process very much in this case. it's very similar to traditional publishing, but I'm not very experienced in traditional publishing. So maybe the other folks have some uh, ideas about that.
0: Mm. Nikki or Carrie, do you have um, kind of some insights on differences in, in publication styles? Uh, My
2: only experience was uh, getting really into the concept of open access and Uh, at Humboldt State University, they have a uh, digital platform that they use to publish dissertations and theses. Um, And so I thought it would be a great idea for our department to have an anthropology journal. And so I firsthand got experience into how difficult it is to get that whole process set up and, and get a peer review process going. And it's really, it's actually coordinating all of the people involved in that and the scheduling is nearly impossible unless you have a huge institution behind you or something that's really going to back you long term so um, my experience was a bit of a failure experience but a really really interesting experience in learning uh, how that process basically looks from the inside Uh, and it's a really really intense intricate process that uh I mean, I obviously wasn't able to get to work. <laughs> yeah, I feel I
1: feel like uh, mine has been a pretty unique experience because for the most part, if you want to make a publication open access, you have to have a huge funding backing, um, especially if it's in a big journal, like an SAA journal. So... I don't mm. want to make people who are listening to this think that my experience of of it being similar and easy and me being paid for it is is typical mm. at all. Um, but in fact, it's, it's more of a testament to people like Sarah and other people who are willing to mentor early career professionals and also um, combat the unpaid labor aspect of being an early career professional. Um, who put a lot of effort into making these opportunities available. And like you said, it's really hard as a grad student to get them to work. So finding those opportunities that make it possible to do open access publishing without having thousands of dollars to pay the pub, the big publishers who are going to get your words seen by the general community of archaeologists is that's a tough situation
0: yeah it's that's a whole lot of tough situations with especially as you mentioned with the issue of unpaid labor, and as we're all familiar with in archaeology the the passion tax as they call it, where you know just because we're passionate about our line of work, um there are a lot of expectations that we should do it for free mm-hmm. uh, and that's just flatly not feasible for most of us um so that's that's great that there are models like this that can help combat that.
1: Yeah, I feel like I need to shout out here as well to April Besaw, who's been, along with Dr. Perry, has been responsible for several of my paid opportunities where I, I did uh, work for her in digital archaeology and in teaching. And I know that her and many other professors go sort of un- appreciated in the way that they create uh, paid or at least somehow compensated learning opportunities. Uh, I know Lynn Goldstein, who created uh, the campus archaeology program at MSU. Uh, She has students, undergraduate and graduate, who have paid positions and research assistantships to teach and learn about different Any different research project that they develop, uh, as long as they develop a rigorous project, they are eligible to apply for that funding. And so um, it's hard because there's no list out there of who, you know, who is a great impact, open access um, opportunity or a paid open access opportunity, um, which journals or what what professors offer these sort of opportunities. It's sort of word of mouth at this point, but yeah. it does exist. It does exist, and we just all have to be kind of savvy about it.
0: That's excellent. Well, I guess let's get into the, the publication itself. So you, uh, among other things, are very interested in public archaeology teaching and, and learning. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this publication you recently put out is called virtual and augmented reality in public archaeology teaching and so you talk about virtual and augmented reality um uh i'll take a real quick second to read the abstract because um it's yep if if anybody hears the abstract i'm sure they're gonna want to read the rest of it um so you start off with Two of the biggest challenges in public archaeology teaching are getting interlocutors' attention and getting them to feel connection to past people. Inspiring focus and empathy in the short interactions we have can be difficult, especially when the subjects are very distant in time. New and scholarly produced forms of virtual reality show particular promise for getting and keeping the attention of our publics." Uh, that grabbed me right away. When you shared that, uh, link to your, your article a few weeks ago, uh, I was like, hell yeah, this is my jam. Um, so <laughs> let's talk us for a second about virtual and augmented reality. So let's talk about VR first. Uh, what, what uh, is hey. VR? What is AR?
1: Do you, does anyone else want to summarize or do you want me to, I feel like, uh, Like Carrie might have the best AR explanation based on her description of her work. Yeah, I can, I'll grab AR if you take VR. For sure. (laughs) Go for it.
3: (laughs) Okay. So augmented reality, the key word in that is augment. So you are taking the real world and augmenting it and somehow and using usually a mobile device or a computer that is using the camera to view the real world, and then there's a program that will put a digital item or sound or video into that view of the real world. Uh, so the most common example of this would be Pokemon Go, Google Glass, um, kind of two years ago, AR broke to the popular consciousness, and people are beginning to use it to, um, it's really catching on to museums right now, doing museum tours or augmenting displays of certain paintings with a more in-depth story. And archaeologists are hopping on the boat
2: now.
1: Yeah, definitely. I've uh, I can't remember the name of the app that I love, which is horrible. But um, there is an app which uh, overlays historical photos upon your uh, your app in your phone. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh gosh, I think it's a London Street View. It's by a something like that. There's that one, and then there's also, an, I think, an American-based one that I can't think of the name of it right now. I'll look it up. But um, the that's another really cool sort of heritage-connected AR that I think people love to see those historical photos uh, transposed onto their surroundings.
0: Yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, and then I also know that uh, Yelp has the monocle feature Uh, buried somewhere deep within their obnoxious menu. But um, if you're standing on a street that's, you know, that has multiple storefront locations, you can turn on the monocle and it it does a similar thing where it overlays the position of stores and, you know, a a clickable link to that store on your camera. So you can just hold your phone up and kind of scan across the street in real time and look at different stores Um, and I've, the only time I've ever really found that to be useful is, uh, in like places where there's a lot of density in the, uh, you know, on the, on the streetscape. And, uh, so, you know, if there's a store that's their storefront is not quite obvious, um, it's useful to kind of locate that storefront.
1: Yeah. And it's really hard in terms of the historical photos, you need someone to have put in a lot of labor or like you said, with uh, museums and other stuff, it takes someone behind that to put in a lot of labor, even if there's a platform, Um, but it is, but these are usable app platforms that we can, anyone can really use. Um, Now I'm trying to find the name of that one, but I can't, somewhere on my consulting page, which I'll talk about later. Um, So, the difference between that and virtual reality is you can see, for example, if you were projecting um, some additional information onto a museum display uh, where you're using the camera to see the display behind and then in, in the foreground you're seeing some additional information. That's augmented, whereas virtual reality you're replacing the consciousness of the person. So that's what we see when people have those virtual reality headsets on and they have, you know, maybe they have the gloves or a bodysuit or something and they're existing in maybe a video game world or an archeological landscape or some sort of model of reality, which doesn't use their most of their human, uh, senses. And usually it's focused on visual, uh, and then you may use your sense of touch in that virtual reality. So it's that just is goes to show that it's it's a spectrum. Um, you're never going to remove someone from their body. So in a sense, everything is a little <laughs> bit a little bit AR. You know, it's a little bit they're still experiencing their own body. Um, oh, is that another cat? No, <laughs> It's a plane. Exciting. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so there's a spectrum, and... Ooh!
2: Um,
1: <laughs>
0: that <was a> <laughs> we have a one. siren
1: on our end. Oh, good. We have so many people participating in this co- podcast this week. <laughs> uh, so the article I would send people to for the definitions of augmented and virtual reality would be, um, Paul Milgram, et al., 1995, which is... In, an, in a journal that archaeologists probably would have never read, and I'm thankful to Sarah Perry for showing it to me, um, but it has to do with uh, thinking of those two as a continuum. Uh, and oh, I just thought of the name of that app. It's called Clio, C-L-I-O, oh, okay. and it, it uses a map as well as historical photos uh, and it has apps, I think on both app stores, I know it has a Android app, but you can also use it on a desktop to explore, for example, your neighborhood um, in an augmented fashion. So I think these are really powerful technologies when we are trying to communicate to people who may not have the sense of space that archaeologists often have after they've worked in a place for a long time. They can visualize the where different sites were underneath a parking lot, which is the case in my town. There's a lot of places downtown where I have worked, and I can remember what I found there and what I imagined the space to be like based on what I found, and they don't see it that way. And so when I did, for example, the Pokemon tour, that's when I got really interested in this because I wanted to jump onto that trend and see if I could attract a group of people that wouldn't normally come to a history tour downtown. Uh, usually there is a couple of there are a couple of historical societies and they have the same interested people, which is great. But I wanted to see if I could get some of the sort of younger, less typically history engaged folks. And I did, and I got a handful of folks and not one of them had been to college. None of them had been to a historical tour. We were going to actual historic monuments and they didn't realize all these really cool things were surrounding them. And they were playing Pokemon at those places and didn't know why those were gyms or why those were PokeStops. Uh Uh-huh. And so I was able to describe to them, for example, uh, that the place where we started the tour was a, a historical place for two reasons. One of them, we have a Martin Luther King uh, Peacemaker stage, and that's because that is in the place where the old KKK headquarters for this state was.
0: <laughs> oh wow!
1: And and so in the 1920s, I believe, is when that was like at its peak. And so I don't quote me on that, but, um, so I explained that and they were like, wow, it didn't even occur to me that that was like, they just thought it was named for no reason. Um, so it was great to teach them that and have them see these spaces differently. And then down the street is where we had a, our own factory fired a couple of years after the triangle shirtwaist factory fire, uh-huh. which, um, among other things, contributed to the labor rights movement in the United States. Binghamton has a pretty rigorous history of of labor rights and unions and things like that um, that people don't really recall, especially because we're sort of a conservative, right-wing-oriented city. We're a Rust Belt city. Yeah. Um, So anyway, I was able to open the eyes, at least temporarily, of five or so people, including one archaeology grad student that I know. And uh, I found it was really successful because my goal was to augment their reality by allowing them to experience the space that they normally experience, but adding a layer of my own, you know, information. So I think these are powerful technologies. And it was super easy to just know those five spots, get the Pokemon app and do some basic like te- trying it out and seeing how it worked so I could design a tour. Didn't take me that long. Did a little bit of promo on social media and got a handful of people and I I felt really gratified by it. So I just want everyone to know that no matter what your level of competency is, there are many options out there for you to try and if you want to ask, you know, I'm sure all three of us on this panel are helpful, kind people who are willing to answer your questions if you have a question um, and you're a colleague. So just try it out and see if you like it and see if it if it helps you to communicate those values that you're trying to communicate um, by using the devices and, and technologies that get people excited. Just get them in the door.
0: yeah. I think what's really cool about the Pokemon Go history project that you did is that uh it sounds like it didn't take any any development uh in terms of like software or, or like mobile app development uh yeah. and so it was it was just, you know, learning, providing the information about these historical places and then doing some outreach and then bringing these people to those places and I think that that's an amazing like DIY kind of way to do it. And so it doesn't have to be, you know, a a super shiny and polished app that, you know, does everything you can possibly imagine. So I, I think that that's a really successful example of, of, uh, you know, just getting out and kind of doing it yourself.
1: Yeah. What have you guys tried, uh, in terms of low friction as we call it in the digital community? Uh, What have you all tried with different virtual and augmented reality programs that you think other people might um, find accessible?
3: I've used Vuforia in combination with Unity, and I don't have a developer background. And kind of a few Google videos in, you can get a uh, 3D model to pop up from a target image without that much expertise.
2: Cool. uh, My favorite is actually a language app that's called Plico, and basically the general idea is that it's a built-in dictionary that's specifically made for learning Chinese language, but it has an OCR feature, so you can take your camera that's built into your phone and point it at any Chinese characters anywhere, wherever you are, and it'll give you... It highlights all those characters, reads it through the OCR, and it'll give you the translation of the word or the phrase that you have popped up right on your screen. So it was when I went to China to do field work and to even like translate some of our basic stuff for our field work, it was absolutely essential and super easy to use too. That's awesome. I wish I had that at WAC in Japan
1: this past summer. (laughs) Learning a new alphabet is really tough. Um, And I bet you could, do they have an API or another way that you could use it for another language or set of symbols, or is it mostly just focused on Chinese language?
2: It's focused on Chinese language right now, just because that was, um, the creator really found that was his niche and wanted to stick to that and do that one thing really well. Um, Mm -hmm. But I mean, the basic concept is there. So I don't see why there couldn't be other people who are experts in other languages or working through um getting other apps going that are completely usable as well.
0: Yeah.
1: I should I should uh clarify what I mean by API oh. depending on our audience. <laughs> um yeah. so in computer programming API is is a um uh, it's an abbreviation for Application Programming Interface. And basically when someone else creates something like, let's say they created Pinterest or they created Twitter or they created um, Mastodon, which is like an open source uh, social networking program Mm -hmm. online, uh, you can, some people make that API available to you so that you can take how they built their app and reproduce it or you can take data out of um, what they've collected depending on the the protocol they set for asking their server for that data it sounds confusing but i promise it's not so bad and and so for example open context has an api for asking the open context archaeological data uh, not a repository publishing service uh you can ask that database for a subset of data that they store on their server. So you can say, I want all the Middle Eastern ceramics from this time period, and it'll kick out an output. So when we're talking about these different apps, um, there is a way to, if the developer makes it available to you, to use what they've already built to create your own thing. And that makes it a lot easier for DIY folks uh, to create something that works without starting a career in computer programming.
0: Yeah, so what are some of the incentives for developers to make their API available? Like, wouldn't they want to just hoard that? This is just you know, a, a, just asking. Uh, how is that? Is it a common yeah. thing for them to uh, make that available?
1: Well. I don't know too much about that besides that the people I know, like Eric Kansa do know a lot about it. Uh I know that it was nearly impossible for me to deal with Pinterest's API when I was trying to make a a basic layout that behaved like Pinterest for Uh a different purpose. Uh, I know that Facebook has been harder for me to work with. Twitter is still pretty easy to, use in terms of grabbing data from Twitter about, say, a scholarly conversation through a hashtag, like maybe you want to export all the tweets from a certain hashtag. Um, So I don't know what the, the incentive is other than if, honestly, if they make money from apps that use it, then they probably make it available. But I don't know if anyone else knows a lot more about that than I do. Probably they do. Do either of you know more about that? I do not. I don't no. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm not.
1: I'm not good at the business aspect of tech. I will give you. I, I will uh, admit, but I know that a lot of uh, the folks involved in digital archaeology want everything to be open by default, as long as there is not a cultural or ethical reason not to. So, in terms of the kind of things I described in my publication, which were produced by other scholars in the heritage sector, so historians, you know, geographers, sociologists, archaeologists. Uh, they tend to make things open because not only do they want to discuss them further, uh, they want to get people's help in developing it because they don't usually have a background in development except for heritage applications, although Ethan Wattrall is probably the uh, exception to that rule. Uh, So on a basic level, if you're looking for something for a heritage application and you can find something that someone else in our field has, made, it's probably accessible to you. And if it's not, you can probably email them and they will almost certainly let you use it and turn it into whatever you want. So don't be discouraged by how scary something looks because honestly, I've taught myself all these things. Um, Sean Graham has tons of tutorials online for different digital things you can try. He loves to experiment and then he explains how he did it and teaches it to his students. Uh, and then sends it out to the rest of us. So there really is a lot out there for people to learn um, for free.
0: That is great to know. And it's also great to know that there's this inclusive community that's very welcoming to, you know, beginners and outsiders for, you know, learning and also collaboration and development. Because um, that's that's just an inspiring thing to see. And that's, I think, what most of us are working towards anyhow.
1: I sure hope we see them... Uh, welcoming. <laughs> I I have gotten a couple of nasty emails in the past, uh, one of which called us the Digi tribe and uh, said that we speak another language of no interest to other archaeologists. So I, I am trying to do the legwork to uh, show people that that's not true. And also that digital labor is not anymore just a masculine task. I know a lot of the big Names in digital archaeology are male, white, and in the 40s to 50s age range, but as you can tell from this group here on the podcast, um, this is a community where folks of all backgrounds and genders and ages are welcome to participate, so don't get discouraged by that and find one of us. MSU DAI was almost all women because mostly women applied. Uh, and so, you know, there are other folks out there. If you want to reach out to someone who you recognize.
0: That's awesome. Well, uh, I'd love to talk about more about some successful programs. We could come back around to that. Um, but I, wanted to find out more about some examples of AR and and VR. And so uh, in your publication, you mentioned artifacts in 3D, uh, virtual landscapes, and a few other things. So um, let's talk about, I I guess, the process for artifacts in 3D and virtual landscapes are are roughly the same. Um, Do you have some examples of uh, those?
1: Yeah, so do you mean how they were made or how they're used?
0: Uh, Both
1: okay well uh i personally have not made any artifact 3d scans but i can tell you from lots of talk and and social media posts with uh daniel pett and other folks at the british museum as well as bernard means who is a a huge he he does uh, what's it called a virtual curation laboratory if you want to see his uh, work on social media with his students but The process of scanning an artifact is pretty self-explanatory as long as you have the equipment and uh, the technical knowledge on how to edit those 3D models, and maybe the other folks here could describe those um, processes if you've done it before. But uh, showing it on the computer, if you use Sketchfab, which is a website uh, which you can publish your 3D models on, You can view it on any internet connected device. And I see that as a huge benefit, especially to folks like me and probably all of us who have limited budgets and limited time to put into development. Uh, So you can just click a little button on the model. Once you go to the website and it will view it in 3d, you can manipulate it and rotate it around and look at the texture and, uh, then if you have a Google Cardboard, which I just got three of them for $8 each, so they're oh, very wow. affordable. Yeah, I now have five, so now I can, now I can uh, teach in my friend's class instead of just using one. But uh, if you have a cheap VR headset or a fancy one, you could probably borrow one if you're near a university or a makerspace. Uh, then you can press a button on Sketchfab and view those artifacts in 3D. And I had a great deal of success with this when I did it during a break time as sort of a test when I taught a class at a zoo. We have a local zoo that does a sort of science class uh, during breaks. And I taught about Native Americans um, there. So we looked at some artifacts that I couldn't have brought because I don't have my own teaching collection. So it really added. uh, And there is some pedagogical literature that shows that using 3D models might be, it engages people in a different way. It's not necessarily better or worse, but there are positives to using 3D models and viewing and manipulating them that do not seem to come through when you bring in example artifacts especially if students can't touch them yeah. so um there's a great there's great promise to this and it's easy so that's what i like about that has have any of the rest of you used any 3d models or things like that in your teaching yeah i was
3: on a project led by steve Warnicky of vanderbilt university last summer in southern peru and we actually digitized the progress of all our excavations using photogrammetry, and then he uploaded most of these models to Sketchfab and appended them with, "Oh, this is the hearth feature. This is the floor that's publicly accessible." So it makes the excavation brings it into your living room. That's super cool. That is,
0: and cool. the it's other like thing is. Tour.
1: Yeah, and then and the other thing about Sketchfab is because they are you know decontextualized models, just like the landscape model as well. You don't have to attach it to any geographic point, so that you can say, "Here's my excavation progress" without revealing the location. Oh, that's
0: uh, so important. So if you're,
1: yeah, yeah, so it's not like using an online GIS where you might need to obscure or randomize some of the points. Uh, it's a little bit easier to keep control over the preservation aspect and worries about that
2: yeah and one thing that I really like about working with a lot of those models is the ability to augment the model itself so you're able to flip things over and look at them in other ways like say I've done it with rock art before where you're able to really zoom in and change the colors and shadowing effects in a way that right. you're not necessarily able to see with your naked eye. so we had a project for when i was doing my undergrad where a group of students and i went out to utah um, and we did just a a visual model it wasn't actually to scale or anything because we couldn't physically make it over to the panel to put any markers up Um, but we were able to take this panel back to the lab have basically render it into a pdf that we could email to people there's no location data in it but we could manipulate it and find different images that we weren't able to see from far away so it's it really enhances what you're able to do uh interpretation wise once you're out of the field
1: yeah it's super cool as well when you can do that with a landscape like you can't necessarily always make it into a pdf i suppose but um, if you create a vr landscape as well um, the possibilities for communicating to people or for sharing with stakeholders are really great, especially if they can't visit. Like the example I used in the article was Virtual Rosewood, which is the site of a race riot that took place in the 1920s, and the land there is currently owned by um, primar- primarily by people who are not super interested in engaging with the ten- uh, tense history of of the area, and often are seem to be. Uh, descendants of one or the other side, um, so yeah. they don't necessarily wanted want to engage with the fact that their ancestors may have uh, committed violent acts. I probably wouldn't want to either. Um, but but having a virtual representation of historical records, oral histories, um, previously disconnected property records, and and notes that dr gonzalez tenant uncovered and connected back together is at the very least a powerful symbol to show to the two different descendant groups who've organized around the important history of rosewood and so having that virtual model is a form of i hate this term but a digital repatriation ah yeah um and he he doesn't to be clear, he doesn't use the word repatriation and, and he uses a lot of really rich language and I recommend you read his articles on that. But um, to me, it it resonates with the notion of digital repatriation in cases where you cannot um, provide access or provide um, control over artifacts or narratives, but you can create something that addresses an inequality that you have the power to research and and help with
0: that's amazing and i uh there's another example of um virtual landscapes there's a a company called lithodomos vr yeah Uh, i believe Mm -hmm. they're based out of australia but they have an app on the apple app store it's just called ancient jerusalem in vr it's two dollars yeah and it looks like it um it's compatible with various VR headsets. Um, and mm-hmm. one of the cool things about that is that it's um, a photorealistic um, reconstruction of the city that you can explore around every single angle.
1: Yeah, I've seen that one before. And I, in my article, at least, I only uh, discussed projects that I knew a lot about how they were made and where the intellectual property... Yeah. And fun funding all came from just so that I was making sure I sent people in the right direction. Mm-hmm. That one seems to be scholarly produced as well, but I don't know a lot about it. Um, but it's a really cool opportunity for folks who have heritage in that area of the world.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, um, I guess this is a good point to double back around. You had mentioned, you know, places that have you know, clear streams of intellectual property and so on and so forth. But earlier in our conversation, you had mentioned uh, the programs at MSU. um, They have an amazing digital archaeology program, and uh, you've been heavily involved in that, right?
1: I have been lucky to have been one of the, I guess, delegates, uh, the people who received NEH funding to participate in the Digital Archaeology Institute that they hosted. Uh, Dr. Goldstein and Dr. Wattrall um, applied for the funding so that 20 archaeologists of a wide range of vocations and experience levels and um, topics could learn a broad base of relatively new technology skills from a group of experts and then to be mentored for a year to create a project. So Uh, I benefited greatly from their, their facilities. They have um, cultural heritage, Cultural Heritage Informatics Initiative. They have a a great digital archaeology lab and uh, fellowships where they mentor students for a year to create a project related to their research interests. So um, they basically extended those resources to professionals beyond their department, which was wonderful. Uh, And now two of the folks who were in the Institute ended up applying for jobs there because um, they wanted to pursue more work, and so uh, Stacy Camp and Alice Lynn McMichael are both working there now, and pursuing their digital archaeology careers. So I highly recommend the the resources that they made available and the training materials that they made open access through that that grant. So uh, go if you go to I think digitalarchaeology.org. Let me look. There's free more free stuff for people to, <laughs> digitalarchaeology.msu.edu, I believe it is the website. Cool. But yeah, MSU is great. So Where did you sp- guys get your resources? Oh, sorry, Chris. <laughs>
0: no, go ahead. That uh, I was, Would you mind repeating that question?
1: Yeah, I was thinking uh, maybe the other two panelists would, want to share where they got their resources or how they taught themselves these skills? Because I know that's a big task.
3: Yeah, I, during the last semester, took a new technologies and archaeology course from Tom Whitley at Sonoma State. And he did a great job covering um, drones, photogrammetry, AR, VR, as well as uh, Terragen, which is a photorealistic landscape generator that's actually used in Hollywood a lot. Um, So it was a lot of getting an introduction from him and then kind of chasing down those free online resources, whether it be YouTube or an open access um, tutorial from a university.
2: Yeah, mine has been just slowly dabbling through. Um, We ended up purchasing Agisoft one semester at Humboldt State. And so a bunch of the students jumped on and decided we would try to learn it and apply it to a bunch of different projects. So um, I've just kind of haphazardly been teaching myself things. And then I found the Center for Digital Archaeology, which is where I'm interning now. And they have a lot of webinars where they're inviting experts to come in and teach uh on all sorts of topics. So that's really where I've started to get into a lot of the uh, intro learning and then taking it from there, just going deep into, like Carrie said, YouTube and online tutorials. Um, I also do a lot on the EDX platform. So Mm. if you're into online learning, the massive open online course platforms are really uh, a good way to uh, tap into courses that universities will put together and provide. Um, so a lot of my user experience training has just come through there from, um, from university of Michigan as well. Seems like we, I think the digital archeology span
1: commons is I've, I've been trying to get it even more Oh, cats back. Sorry. <laughs> the, uh, I've been trying to get it people more interested in participating in it because the whole goal of it was uh, to coalesce all these resources into one place. Uh, but I know a lot of people don't like forums, so maybe that's part of why it hasn't got tons and tons of users. Um, but it seems like having some sort of space for us to all share this stuff is a really important thing. So for now, I guess Twitter is working fairly well and sounds like different professors and and grad students are sharing the wealth with each other. Um,
0: Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And in your publication, you had also mentioned the uh, Florida Public Archaeology Network. What are some of the things that they've been doing in terms of AR or VR?
1: i'm not sure exactly to be honest i bet uh kevin Godusco would know who i'm working on a, a conference session with um they do so much i can't keep up with it um but but in the publication i specifically mentioned them because they've been an incredibly incredibly prolific and long-term public archaeology outreach program and they have folks there who are specifically in outreach and communications who have PhDs in those fields, um, not in archaeology. And so they get a dizzying amount of ideas and um, pilot projects out in order to develop effective advocacy for archaeology and preservation. So I don't know of a specific VR or AR project, Uh but I wanted to inspire people to experiment because that's how that program and the campus archaeology program and uh, at MSU and other long-term programs seem to have sustained themselves for so long is by trying new things and letting that be a feature rather than um, a a glitch in their programming, making it be variable, creative, up to date um so yeah that's
0: i think that's a really great call to action too in in the conclusion of your paper is you know to get out there and and experiment and get involved with these programs too i i'm also not familiar with uh the specifics of exactly what uh the florida public archaeology network is involved in but they're one of those groups that um they are such a successful example of public archaeology because they have such a a a wide reaching network and so many people involved in it regionally throughout areas of florida that they're able to stay active and really weather the kinds of um, political storms in terms of uh, legislature or funding or You know things that might happen on the academic or on the um private sector end of things um so for sure they're a really impressive group so it's it's cool to see that you know they have so many people involved that it's just impossible to keep up with yeah
1: i you know sorry to to change topics i was hoping i could hear more um about the projects that the the other two uh Women on the panel had described at the beginning, and I feel like I uh, didn't give them enough of an opportunity to talk about them. Uh, do we have time to? Oh, absolutely. To have Let's them chat a little more. Okay, great. Um, I guess take it away. I I just don't know what to ask, but I know that I want to hear a lot more about what you're what you're doing.
2: Yeah, I'll go first. Um, so I'm like I said, it's it's kind of still up in the air because I haven't gotten all of my proposals out and completely approved yet. Um, but the general idea is to apply methods from, uh, the field of user experience, which if you're not familiar with that field, it's very similar to anthropological research in general, except the idea is that you're applying it to product development or software development. Um, and so looking at things like archeology span and how it's presented through different project websites or blogs is really, uh, I thought UX would be a good way to study that sort of phenomenon. And so the way that I'm proposing is to do it through a case study of an already existing project website. And the project website that I'm gonna work on is the Market Street Chinatown archeology span project website. Mm -hmm. And this is a project that's been going on for many, many years at Stanford University. Um, And the original plan was to have this website be a repository of academic research and different site update reports and things that have gone on with the collection over time. Um, but now, with all of the changes with public archaeology and the internet and all of the advances in just technology applied to archaeology in general, there's uh, new ideas, and the project really wants to reconsider everything that they're presenting and just go over the whole site as a whole and do a full evaluation. So that's what I'm looking to do is go over the site and see um, what this huge multiple stakeholder project is looking to change or add. um, And then how people are generally using the site overall, if it's a lot of researchers or people from different cultures coming in and trying to learn about what happened in Market Street or students, Uh, so just Getting a general idea of who's really looking for what sort of information or pictures or artifacts or anything that we could be putting on the website, just what people are really expecting to see and what kind of gets them excited about interacting with these collections that are still actually really being worked on after all these years
1: yeah it sounds like it really overlaps with a trend in in the literature that I'm really partial to right now, which is uh, evaluation for lack of a better term in public archaeology and sort of how do we how do we know if we're sending the messages that we'd like to send mm-hmm. or or providing the things to the public that will get them to appreciate what we're doing. Um, it sounds like a really interesting approach to that. What technologies are you going to use for that project?
2: Um, for the most part, it's going to be um, more of the social research. So I'm looking at user testing and focus groups, so that I can have all of the project stakeholders uh, coming in and giving their ideas of what they're what they originally intended for the site and what they've learned overall um, after it's been up there for so long. Uh, And so I'm hoping to do first a heuristic evaluation, which just looks over uh, kind of the general functionality of a website in general, and then going more into talking with the users and interacting with the users and getting them uh, using different possibilities of prototypes of the website. So maybe we do throw up some 3D images or different things, different projects that we've put together or that the Market Street Chinatown project has put together over time um, because there is a lot of online exhibits and things that can be linked and moved around. um, And we want to get a general idea of what people want to see and what we have that they aren't necessarily seeing yet. Mm -hmm. So I think the biggest method for me will be the user testing aspect of it.
3: Yeah, and uh, for me, I just my most recent project uh, I completed as part of my coursework for Sonoma State, and we partnered with the Presidio of San Francisco, which, if you're unfamiliar, is a Spanish fort that was founded in 1776 to be the kind of northernmost military garrison to defend the Spanish Empire against the uh, Russians and Americans and English, and. Uh, Right now, the Presidio is a pretty amazing place because they have um, an archaeology department that conducts uh, public excavations throughout the summer that are open for viewing, comment, participation. Um, And Carrie Jones, the archaeologist there, was really excited about enhancing public interpretation using augmented reality because they had a set of iPads that weren't, being fully utilized Um, and what we proposed is that right now the original spanish fort they excavate every summer and you can see little bits and pieces of the foundation through these unit windows but really the public doesn't have a sense of kind of the experience the size the placement of these forts in the contemporary landscape because it's all like you said most archaeology is under a paved parking lot right Um, yeah So we built a, we partnered with a team that built a 3D model in SketchUp of both the 1792 building and the 1815 building. And we programmed these into an app using Vuforia and Unity uh, that we then gave to the Presidio of San Francisco. And what this app functions to do is it uses a base satellite image of the area where the archaeological remains are situated now. And when your phone is open with the app and pointed at this base map, whether it be projected on the ground or a map that you print out at home, Mm -hmm. there will be, um, the app will recognize this base image and 3D models of the Presidio will pop over the space where they once existed and we also um, learned that kind of having 3d models isn't necessarily that engaging unless you have some level of interactability. So right. we had yeah. like little history blurbs that people could click and there'd be pictures and stories um, that people could get more engaged with the history of the Presidio and the people that were once there. And this summer we're kind of really pushing to actually employ it as part of their public interpretation program. And in the, um, January 2018, there's going to be a paper at the SHA annual meeting in New Orleans.
1: That's super cool. So it's yeah. like it, It's like the project that I described in the publication in the sense that it uses a base map or base document um, to allow Unity to, or I don't know if it's Unity or Euphoria, since I haven't used them, but uh, it, basically the The computer can recognize or the computer in your phone can recognize the symbols underlying the in the underlying document or space. And then you um, give it a place to put that 3D model so that when you look at the map, it shows it right on top of where it would be on the map um, or in the document. Right.
3: Yeah, that's exactly the idea. So your base image could be anything from a business card to a map to a page in a diary, as long as it has, it needs to have a certain level of visual sophistication Contrast. that yeah. it can
1: pick onto. So the like QR codes are a kind of an optimal example, but yeah, um, Sean Graham said that it was pretty difficult to get, uh, the diary in the attic thing to work because, the I think that it didn't have the visual characteristics as just as a a single document. So he added coffee stains uh, as a layer mm-hmm. on top, like visually so that the computer um, program could recognize each coffee stain's shape yeah. and contrast in order to project the three d models and sounds and stuff. so no, it that's sounds a great, like great workaround yeah. for that problem. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really creative, but it, is, it's, um, it does obscure the text a little bit, which is, I know, is a technical challenge and not one that reflects anything on Sean, of course. But uh, it sounds like a really cool way to to move through the space um, without requiring new infrastructure to be built.
3: Yeah, it was as simple as printing out a map or projecting a map. It didn't require a heavy, the biggest investment was the labor in developing it.
1: Mm-hmm. Seems like a lot of these, these types of solutions and projects are done by grad students. I mean, maybe maybe because I'm a grad student and I know a lot of grad students, but um, I've noticed in, in the process of doing my dissertation, uh, a lot of the funds come from universities for their professors and students and not necessarily through grants. Um, and if they come through grants, they come through local more local grants rather than the big research grants. Um, so it's interesting that we're all grad students or or were students when we developed these programs, I think. And we do have a lot of things to contribute as students, in part because our job is to learn and put a lot of time into something that may benefit us in a non-monetary fashion.
3: <laughs> yeah,
1: um, Yeah. I don't know. I i am just reflecting on how these are really cool solutions, but a lot of professors may not be able to put in the time to learn all these new methods as much as students whose job it is to learn new methods.
0: Yeah that would certainly contribute to a lag in adopting these new methods and seeing them as standard practice or at least more common practice in classrooms uh but you know it'll take time and i think it's programs like like you're working on and like all all three of you are working on uh these projects in public archaeology and teaching and engagement that are important for compensating for that lag that might happen in the classroom. Um, because, you know, the more successful you are at disseminating knowledge about archaeology to either the public or to students and other archaeologists, you know, it's just going to make everything happen faster and better and just kind of uh, keep steaming along all of this innovation that's happening. So it's it's really cool to learn about these things.
1: I'm excited that you got us all together because I didn't, I uh, don't know that we would have all connected uh, in this way otherwise. So it's a great opportunity.
0: Yeah, likewise. Well, are there any other uh, things that you all would like to talk about?
3: Oh, I definitely like to talk to Kate more just because when we were doing our research on AR and VR and archaeology, the there was existing kind of phenomenology, um, but not a whole lot of other small scale experiments that we could have learned from so it would have been great
1: to learn
3: about Kate before I started that project
1: <laughs> <laughs> well i don't i don't know how much i would have been able to help you at that point i'm it's sort of a new thing for me but i've learned a lot from people like Stu Eve, Sean Graham, um Colleen Morgan, a lot of folks who are really into digital archaeology as a method, but also as a, a transformative practice that impacts knowledge production. Mm-hmm. Um, the three of them, especially I'd say Colleen, are really focused on the, uh, the theory behind why we produce these things and what, how it changes how we know what we know. So and then obviously Lorna Richardson, um, who talks about social media and how uh, disseminating and communicating among scholars on social media is a practice that that changes the field of archaeology overall. I think um, maybe I'm blowing up these people too much, and they'll be or, embarrassed by No, because my my, uh, uh, uh,
2: my experience has been the same, and things like like Lorna put together the public archaeology Twitter conference, which was, that was huge. I was able to, I was attending one conference and then presenting at this virtual conference on the lunch break and just the ability to have all of those researchers internationally interacting at the same time, well, (laughs) across a couple of days because of the different time zones. But that was Mm -hmm. something that was absolutely fascinating to be a part of, just to see how much is out there and to get everybody together talking about things at the same time in this virtual platform was really, really interesting.
0: That is really cool. And uh, I, I think it's worth name dropping these people because they have had such a profound effect on the archaeological community, at least the digital archaeology community. And, you know, even in my own experience for the past like five years or so, The Twitter community of archaeologists has, you know, the the network there has really had a big impact on, you know, my professional career and my my personal and professional development, too. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of people out there doing some really good work for the field. Um, So they they deserve some recognition.
1: I think, too, it expands our sense of what's possible, Um, at least for me. I felt like I might be one of the only ones interested in digital methods, especially early on in my graduate career here. Um, we're a very theory-based department, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, but I also uh, I feel that it's we do better work when we bounce it off other folks who are sort of doing a similar thing, and to be able to find other people and and, you know, bounce ideas off each other or I have a friend who's emailing me some of her data today because she needs me to transform it in a way that she doesn't know how to right now. Um, it rotate it because of a a total station glitch and just things like that, that level of support is really great. And I think that's what really makes it possible to do these virtual and augmented reality projects for me is that I can always reach out to Sean Graham or tweet and set and add the hashtags, VR, AR, DigiArc, um, you know, those MSUDAI and just say, hey guys, does anyone know what, this problem is like, can you give me somewhere to start? Because I've looked and I feel frustrated, yeah. um, and and I don't know uh, if you guys have have done that or whatnot. But the digital community has really helped me make this stuff possible.
0: Yeah, definitely. And just in terms of like geospatial questions, um, you know, I've I've thrown some questions out there and kind of direct them at. You know i i never really know exactly who's working on what specifically or who might know the answer to it but uh kate you especially have have been incredibly helpful in kind of pointing me in the right direction and uh you know stephen wagner too is whenever mm-hmm. i have like a, a question about something specific uh, i usually end up with a pretty good answer in a few hours
1: i know nikki you said that you took a class um on digital methods did you that was carrie oh i'm sorry (laughs) i feel like a jerk for mixing you up
2: um i have a i have a twin sister so i am actually very used to being called by another name oh i'm so sorry (laughs) (laughs) no worries
1: uh, it sounds like both of you have also utilized the online community as well even though um you've had a little bit of in-person support as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, I know for me, especially, this is Nikki, um, just jumping into Twitter every now and then, I'm not necessarily all that active, but it's given me this lens into what it's like to be a digital researcher because, like you said, I am I have a really, really good uh group of people around me in my physical academic environment mm-hmm. but it's not like everyone's specializing in these methods or really looking into the theory behind them and so to have access to people who are doing this on the daily and it's a normal part of their life um, seeing how that's integrated into the whole academic sense of things has been really helpful for me just as i'm starting out as someone who's really new and doesn't even know where to start looking half the time mm-hmm. it's, Twitter is usually a good place to start looking. Oh, I appreciate Kate bringing up the um,
3: the point of view that technology can often be intimidating for people who are not middle-aged white folks that have been doing technology since the 70s. Um, so that's part of the value of online resources is seeing all these diverse groups of people doing like a myriad of projects that is kind of makes it feel a little bit less alien, but yeah, it's still, it's still a world that doesn't always feel the most friendly to explore for someone who's a female.
1: Yeah. I'm hoping that, you know, by name dropping the digital archeology span comments, I can get a few more people on there and, uh, to me, sometimes I think people are turned off as well by the fact that Twitter and other sort of support groups may be, once you find them, maybe public um, and they, they're embarrassed to ask or to admit that they don't know something um, in public, especially if you're in a precarious situation with your job, which a lot of us are um, just, you know, everything's temporary and, and sort of... Fluid in in early career and throughout your career in archaeology. So, I loved the idea of a, just a traditional forum where we could chat and share news and all this stuff. But I'm not I'm not sure um, how it's developing now. But it's a private platform, and you can just make an account on there and join. So, I I wonder what solutions we'll come up with as we keep. Uh, developing through different social media approaches. Obviously, we had MySpace, which I was in middle school and high school when that was still around, so I didn't do any digital archaeology then. But uh, Twitter is sort of the big thing now, but people keep foretelling the the demise of Twitter, especially with various um, political figures taking over the, the <laughs> narrative there. <laughs> no names needed. Uh, so I'm curious what our how our community is going to keep transforming and how we're going to get in touch with one another um, for this kind of support but there's always folks like the british museum who are an institution you know you may have opinions about various things that they're doing or or where their funding comes from or whatever Um, but these big institutions you know they have groups of people who are dedicated full-time to this digital stuff and are super helpful, um, and, and give us platforms to do low cost research because they have the ability to do that. So I guess I'm, I'm curious what comes next.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's hard to even imagine everybody logging off of Twitter, uh, ever because the people who are prolific posters just seem to live on there, but I'm sure something will come next. And you know, it's it's hard to imagine what's missing. Like, what can be added to a social media platform that you know isn't already being done? But I'm sure it'll yeah. come.
1: Well, and I feel like I guess I I connect this to our topic at hand because. We are a community of people that are already there, and it and it might change sooner rather than later. And and I wanna, my goal, I guess, my crusade is that people will be willing to try this stuff um, yeah. and realize that it won't won't take over their lives. And so, where can people find us? You know, where can people collaborate with us or see what we're talking about?
0: Yeah, uh, Kate, would you mind again repeating the the link for that uh, forum?
1: it it let me just double check it before so the the website for the Digital Archaeology Institute is digitalarchaeology.msu.edu and then the Commons is a different okay and then the Commons are at commons.digitalarchaeology.msu.edu so it's a sub website okay of of that institute and there's a link on the main site but there's just different topical groups and almost all the folks who participated in the in the institute are there Uh, and you just click account sign up and then you can get email summaries if you want to Um, i've been trying to post a little more often and maybe i'll do another post a set of posts on twitter every week or so that everyone should go and visit Um, but it really is You know, some of the really top folks like Stu Eve and uh, Sean Graham and Ethan and Lynn and um, all the folks from MSU DAI and Daniel Pett, all of them are there. Um, So if you ping them, they will answer you. Uh, And, you know, I'm sure if you ping any one of are are all of us willing to answer questions from the general public, I'm guessing so.
0: Yeah. So, Kate, where can people reach you online?
1: I am well, you can find me on Twitter at precatlady because I had a blog before I knew I was going to do this archaeology on Twitter thing and I got stuck with my not non-archaeology <laughs> thing. So I just I just lean into it and post some cat photos all the time. <laughs> if you like if you don't like cat photos, maybe consider looking at my Twitter feed before you follow me. Uh, But, (laughs) and then uh, you can find my businessy stuff at heritechconsulting.com. And I have a a Facebook page too, and that's spelled H E R I T E C H. So heritage and technology mishmashed into one word. Um, so I try to post stuff about different news stories and projects I support, and then if possible, I post about my own projects and publications regularly.
0: Very cool. And if people only want to follow your cats, uh, Tiberius and Fiona, uh, you've got a uh, an Instagram account. It's <laughs> at ArchaeoCats. And yes, and I, ha- I don't know. Ha- I mean, the internet needs more cats, and so it's a great source for. For the cats, they're adorable.
1: Yeah, if you like, uh, I used to have some uh, archaeology grad student humor attached to every single post, but I, <laughs> oh, but I I gave up on that. But there is someone uh, Woodrow the Cat PhD, I believe, is his Instagram handle, and he does anthropology cat posts. Um, so if you need that dark academic humor. <laughs> <laughs> that, and I wanted to give a hat tip as well to uh, Guy Duke and Sarah Rowe, who came up with Archeocats, and I sort of borrowed it from them. Uh, so Nice. Yeah.
0: Follow all
2: uh, on Instagram.
0: Nikki, how about you? Where can uh, people reach out to you?
2: Uh, my Twitter is at liminalanth. So liminalanth like anthropology. Um, And then my current blog slash online portfolio website is the same thing, liminalanthropology.wordpress.com. Don't go looking for any really recent blogs (laughs) because there aren't any, but uh, (laughs) that's where I'm at.
0: Nice. And Carrie, how about you?
2: Yeah, I'm actually relatively
3: new to publicizing myself on social media. So I have nothing that you're convincing me of, maybe a Twitter might be worth getting. Um, uh, if people wanted to get in touch with me, the best way would probably be through my student email at Lentz, L-E-N-T-Z, as in zebra, K, at Sonoma.edu.
0: Perfect. And uh, as always, people can reach out to me. It's just at go dig a hole on Twitter and Instagram. On Facebook, it's just facebook.com/goDigAhole, and uh, links to all of these uh, people and, and apps uh, will be included on show notes on goDigAhole.com. Thank you so much for joining the show. This was a lot of fun, and I could not have—I I did not foresee it being such a uh, great combination of backgrounds and skills, but I'm incredibly happy that uh, everybody got a chance to connect on this.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Yeah, thanks, Chris.
2: Yeah,
1: thank you.